no, it is an individual thing. It is about the believer encountering the holy and it transforming them and moving them forward. And yes, it happens in the church, but it is not by the church. It is by something larger than the church. To that point, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, no one who couldn't read Latin could read the Bible. The reformers said it needed to be in the language of the people, something the people could understand so they could read and feel it inside and understand it and live it and not just take it on secondhand authority, however tough, for the priest. So that is the first strand of us, is that separation, saying it's an individual thing. It's about individual belief. It is not about being told what is right. It is not about told doctrine or creed. It's about an individual encounter. We differ from Calvin and Luther in the things that Earl Morse Wilton talked about. The role of freedom and reason and tolerance. Now, those other traditions would say those are good things too. We have no corner on that mark. But they define who we are. And for example, in terms of Unitarianism, our Unitarian and Universalist ancestors were biblical literalists, folks. They were biblical literalists. They read the Bible and said, I don't see anything in there that says about the Trinity or what's there seems to be questionable, so we're not going to believe that. It's not what's written in there. We're going to believe what's written in there. And the Universalist said, it says here in the Bible that I have now read that Jesus died that all would be saved, not some, all. They literally took that to mean something true. So as much trouble as we may have with biblical literalists today, let us understand that once we were the biblical literalists who were revolting to some other people. So we churn along like this, with this notion of being an individual-oriented as opposed to corporate. You're not saved by the church. You're saved by your own beliefs. You're saved by your own actions. You're saved by your own actions. And things churn along there really nicely for a while. We're being led by freedom, reason, and tolerance. And we become more liberal. And long about the beginning of the 1600s, maybe through the 1650s, a Dutch Reformed priest named Jacob Arminius comes up with a revolutionary idea which is called a heresy. Remember, we are rebels and heretics and a thing to fly. And he says that every individual has within themselves inherently the capacity to recognize and respond to God. Each of us, in us, already have the capacity to recognize and respond to God. Well, that may not sound that radical to us, but if you put that in contradistinction to the rest of Christianity who said you had to have Jesus' death on the cross to make God accessible to you. You can see that we are staying with that. It is an individual aspect. And it's inherently within us. And that's what begins to fray as Unitarian and Universalism both enter into North America and uh, get root in, in Boston and the neighborhood of Boston. Of course, you know the Unitarian Trinity is the Fatherhood of God, the Brotherhood of Man, and the neighborhood of Boston. 
but suddenly their priests, who were their, their ministers, who were studying at Harvard, this was becoming the dominant philosophy they were coming up with, and that led to conflict. That was the Unitarian controversy, which first presented itself in 1803 in the Hollis Professorship of Religion at Harvard College, because a liberal had been appointed to the School of Religion. That led to the formation of the Divinity School at Yale. <coughs> where the Orthodox could have their ministers trained in an appropriately Orthodox manner. So we're here with this idea that it is an individual belief as opposed to a corporate structure, a, a, a set of doctrines or creeds that are given to us. We've said that each individual has the ability to recognize and respond to the God, to God, to recognize and respond to the good, if that's a word that you don't care to use. One of the later Unitarian great quotes of Cyrus Bartholdus Thank you. 
improve the property or move on. Give up the idea of a universalist church. Unless we are saying it is fully universalist and not just about universal salvation. Well, these things are all radical. In each of these steps, what happens is the radicalism of one generation, one or two generations later, becomes orthodox. Those are a couple of words I probably ought to spend some time with because most of you probably already know this. Because I know the ministries you've had and you've been told this. The word heretic derives from a Greek and Latin word that means choice. I choose. It means I choose, you will not choose for me. A heretic is one who says, I will choose for myself. Orthodoxy, orthodox, right belief. There is one right belief. Well, even among us heretics, we tend to get the idea sometimes that we've got it all solved, and let's put a box around it, and then somebody comes along, like Emerson with a walk in the woods, or Lincoln, uh, Jacob Lloyd Jones in Chicago, and says we need to be looking at a carbon of world religions. In the middle of this, someone has also said this sphere of revelation needs to be broadened because maybe it's not just the sacred writings. Maybe the poets, maybe the philosophers, have said things that we need to study to find that which is true, that which is holy, that which is reliable. <clears throat> Again, this is a stretch. And then somebody really goes and does it. About the beginning of the 1900s, the beginning of the 20th century, and they said, maybe the question isn't about God. Maybe the question is about who human beings are. Maybe until we understand fully who and what human beings are, we don't have any business talking about God. The first beginnings of the humanist movement in our tradition were not anti-theist. They were not necessarily atheist. They were just saying our focus was wrong. But they were men. Just what with tension in the body. But in time, it became orthodoxy too. And by the time we get to the mid-1900s, 1950 or so, orthodox humanism has set foot fully in our movement. And as I noted earlier, I was a member here during the Bill Gold years. And Bill Gold was an Orthodox humanist. He had come out of his other tradition, but he was a fully formed Orthodox humanist. And he didn't want to entertain, entertain much beyond humanism. He was a person of his time. That's what we've done time and time again, is that we come to a point and we say, now we wish to enshrine this because we've got it all finished, figured out, put it in a box, tied up. We've got to work. Well, that happened with humanism for a while. Until the 60s. In the 1960s, something happens to us. Anybody got an idea what it was? Feminism. Feminism. If you've been around any time, you might remember the Blue Hymnal. The Blue Hymnal is our humanist hymnal. And it is full of man. Man this, mankind that, he this, he that, that. Never a she, though not quite never a she, but not very many she's mentioned in that hymnal. Because the humanists saw things and they didn't write in the distinction that was inclusive of the, of the people who were alive. In fact, most cities, I don't know if it's true in Oklahoma City and several other places, the first meeting of the National Organization for Women was usually in a Unitarian church. We have a long history of that being the case. Feminism hits us hard and strong. And I want to talk about that blue hymnal and show you just how much that's true. Uh, in Protestant America, the life
70, our churches were refusing to sing it. Because feminism had entered with such an organic form that people said, we can't say it. In the same way that they came out of churches saying, I can't say the creeds anymore. I've crossed my fingers behind my back when I've said the Apostles' Creed one too many times. I'm not going to do that again. And so then we produced a set of degendered hymns. And the little green booklets. Some of you have been around may remember the green hymns. We started out with about 30 of them, and we finally got about 80 or 90. And those were the ones that they had corrected the gender to the extent they could. And they, they said there were other hymns in the other hymnal that were okay, and they gave a list of the ones that did not seem to have a gender problem. <laughs> this is us. We are heretics who become orthodox. And once we become orthodox, we resist the next level of heretics. So now we've moved into feminism. And it's become it because we, we've got this green hymnal and we're producing things. And we're done. No, we're not done. So what does feminism lead us to? Well, let's see. If you're not going to talk about God, or if you're going to add something to God, you're going to talk about God's. And there was conflict in our churches the moment people started talking about goddesses. Some of it came from the hardline humanists who didn't want to talk about God. Now they're talking about goddesses. <laughs> and the pagan controversy arose. And I know this church actually had its own encounter with that tradition as well, that fight. These, these are not different to us. They are part of us. That's what I'm trying to tell you. So we find a way to kind of make peace. One of the things that happens when we encounter the goddess is we discover one goddess in particular, Gaia, Earth. And we say, oh, there's a goddess I can get behind. This living Earth, this loving Earth, this great creation all around us. We can celebrate that and find the divinity in us. And I follow a strand from who look at the cosmos and talk about the fact that we are connected to this moment when this infinitely hot, infinitely dense thing of proto-stuff suddenly expanded and set in motion the creation of helium and hydrogen which formed suns and stars which blew up and formed other suns and stars and created other heavy elements and eventually suns started to coalesce and some in our neighborhood become our sun and become our solar system, and on one of them, something happens, and we're not sure. Life is a mystery. Life is really a mystery. And suddenly, life comes in. And I find a personal spiritual strain in that. So I can sit back down and say, we're done, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, as comfortable as I am in that. 
I'm of an age that, yeah, it's nice that I can stay in, I could stay in text contact with my son last weekend when he was in Florida and a hurricane was coming through. But I'd much rather have had him with me. And yes, it's good that we can have the Church of the Larger Fellowship do some stuff online and you use that don't live anywhere near a church or don't like the church they're near and be involved in another group of your views. But it isn't the same thing as actually having a place we can come to and be together and have dinner and have coffee and talk. Except it is. I can tell you with certainty that from the millennials that I know, those bonds are as real to them as the ones that I think have to happen person to person. It's up to me to be welcoming to their other way of understanding, their other way of pushing the boundaries out. How do we do this in our lives? Well, we do it by figuring out where do we come from, what are we, where are we going? But the last part is important. Where are we going? It's not where do we come from, what are we, full stop. We're going. We're marching. our challenge and our opportunity. We stand in the present. We are supported by the past. We are informed by the past. But in the words of the hymn we sang, we must learn to trust the dawning future more. Trust the dawning future more. Go forward in the power of love and find the truth. 